May 11th. I'm on my own this evening. Tanya was tired and wanted to go to bed early. Um, I have only a couple of things to talk about. Um, the first one was it was disappointing to see Doug Ford um, admit to inviting his daughters home over the over the weekend. Uh, they live in separate residences, and so the physical distancing guidelines that you know he's his government and public health officials are pushing are that you shouldn't really be visiting with people in their homes uh, people that live in a household stay within that household and don't visit other households that's the way that's the guidance to the public and as a leader i think he should be following that guidance himself so that was disappointing as much as um, and, and as much as uh, I guess I've been impressed with his leadership. This was um, a s not a good sign of uh, the, the opposite of what you hope from a good leader. The other thing I wanted to think about and talk about for a moment was an article um, an article I read about, uh, this is in The Atlantic, an article by McKay Coppins, who, who had to fly and the experience he had, uh, he had to fly for work, uh, I guess it was an unavoidable essential travel of some sort, and he just described the experience he had and how there's this almost grave mistrust of fellow travelers and people kind of eyeballing each other at airports and in bathrooms and kind of he he recounts th that he was actually booked to see that surprisingly the plane was rather full and so people were seated right next to each other and and his seat as he reached his assigned seat the persons that was sitting next to him um, I guess the the per the writer had the window seat, and the and there was already someone in the aisle seat in the row that he was to sit in. The person in the aisle seat, his seatmate, refused to let him into the row. Complaint and 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 uh, he refused to let him into the row and complained to the flight attendants that they shouldn't have to sit so close together and uh, because of physical distancing and so on and. Eventually, the writer of the article got upgraded to first class, but the experience just shows how how we've all um, I don't know how, what what the sentiment is out there, and uh, this sort of this sort of distrust of everyone else and of of the fear fear or worry that we all are dealing with and what that's done to just basic human decency in many cases and 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 um it's a uh yeah it's it's a sad it's become sad and and no matter what we do now to try to flip you know, we can, we're, we're starting to open up in, in Ontario and in Canada and other parts of the world. People are trying to slowly move back to 
normal life in some way and get the economy keep the economy going and get get things rolling again we we can't just flip off people's feelings and and their how how scared everyone is and how worried everyone is it's going to take time hopefully to get back closer to where we were before all this started i mean that's the real question that's going around in my mind is have we irreversibly changed culture in a in a in an unfortunate way and in in this way that we'll never feel comfortable sitting next to someone on i don't know on the subway or in a bus or in a movie theater or in an airplane have we have we made these experiences forever more um, uncomfortable for all of us so that that's the question that was going through my head as i was reading this article i'll put the link in the with this uh with this podcast and the it this reminded me of an article that i'd read a report that i'd read um maybe a month before covid really happened it was in the fall i came across this article it was um it was entitled it's titled when antibiotics fail and this is written by the expert panel on uh socioeconomic on potential socioeconomic impacts of antimicrobial resistance in canada so this is basically this report summarizes the state of anti antibiotic resistance antimicrobial resistance which is that we have we have we're seeing an increasing number of superbugs in hospitals that no known antibiotics can treat and um and this report goes to uh, basically dem talked about this risk of antibiotic resistance as another one you know another one of the pandemic potential sources of a pandemic that we could start to see more of in, in, in outbreaks of this thing and um and in this report in the fifth i think it was in the fifth part of this uh, page 87 of this report they talk about the social impacts of antimicrobial resistance today and in the future with in a future with limited antimicrobials basically what they're what they predict in this report is what we are living through right now. They give these, um, it's a really interesting report in that they, they give these little um, vignettes, that's what they're called, little vignettes of examples of people, you know, members of the public with different, uh, from different sectors of the population. So one is a, like a university student who works in a coffee shop who uh, all of a sudden loses his job because people stopped going to coffee shops because of the outbreak of antimicrobial resistance within in the city that he works in and and so all of a sudden people stop going to coffee shops and and uh, another one of the vignettes is someone who is in horrible hip pain and needs a hip and has had a hip replacement surgery planned uh, but her uh, but she is unable to get this uh, surgery because of 
the risk of uh, the the existing risk of antimicrobial resistance in the midst of an outbreak. Uh, and there's a few other sort of vignettes like this that that are s sort of shockingly um, shockingly close, uh, you know, close predictors of what has come to pass now, not with antimicrobial resistance, but with COVID and this respiratory virus. There's this conspiracy theory out there that COVID, every all the negative effects of COVID that we're seeing was actually planned by, I'm not really sure who, the government, I guess, um, and, and that this was all planned. Uh, I think the documentary that um, keeps going up and being taken down on Facebook and on YouTube and stuff is called the Plandemic. I, I haven't seen it, but I, my gut says that based on the little bits and pieces about it that I'm hearing is that this is at the core of this conspiracy theory is the um, is that this was something planned. And some of the evidence for that is people writing reports like this one warning of this type of thing happening and uh, and people like Bill Gates doing TED Talks. I can't remember how many years ago he did his TED Talk where he again basically predicted the scenario that we're more or less seeing right now. And so conspiracy theorists see those things and say, hey, how come people knew this was going to happen? Um, and so I... You know, I, I'm sure there's lots of good answers to give people. I'm not sure what how the what a convincing answer would be for someone who thinks this was all planned and this was um, there's someone who wants this to happen right now. But um, but I think that's at the, the this I guess this should not have come as a surprise to us. And the next you know what's really um, what I've heard said a few times, and, and I think I'm, I'm beginning to believe this is probably true, this really we should be treating this kind of like a warm-up or a trial run for the next pandemic that is almost certain to come, um, to come at some point in the future. Uh, I'm not sure what it will be. It could be another respiratory virus. It could be something like antimicrobial resistance, which it's it's something like um, this report says something like 20% of uh, bugs that we see now in hospitals are in some form or other resistant to antibiotics, existing antibiotics. Oh, I don't have the numbers with me here. But that number, instead of 20%, if that jumps to 40%, um, you know, it's, at some point we're going to get to a very, we'll get to a point where uh, large numbers of people will start to die because of bugs that we can't treat in hospitals that will start to spread. And we'll have an, ep uh, you know, an epidemic locally first, perhaps, and then that could turn into a pandemic. Oh, here it says, um, here it says, as antimicrobial use continues, resistance levels continue to rise. Currently about 26% 26 to first-line antimicrobials in Canada 
and potentially increasing significantly. The opening section continues on. It says, if actions are not taken to combat the increase of AMR, antimicrobial resistance, Canada will be will be greatly changed within a few decades. The economy will shrink, the healthcare system will be less sustainable, and social inequality will further increase. It is clear that antimicrobial resistance needs not only to be seen as a scientific and healthcare issue, but also as an economic and security threat. It is an insidious problem that increasingly permeates all aspects of society. And so I know that's not something we want to think about um, right now, and we're just still trying to dig out of this one. But I think um, for us to really prepare, we have to we have to think about the fact that actually, in the big scheme of things, this this respiratory virus isn't particularly deadly. I think we. We're going to see numbers, you know, I think the, the highest uh, mortality rates that I've seen people talking about is in the 1% to 2% range, but that is only because we're only counting the people that end up in hospitals or have been, t you know, have uh, symptoms that are bad enough that they have to go uh, be tested. But if we actually start looking deeper into society, large numbers of people have probably been exposed to this and so overall our mortality rates are maybe in the same range as what the flu's the flu is in the 0.1 or 0.2 percent range in that range and so we have to think about what could happen if we end up with a virus or some antibiotic resistant bacteria that has a much higher mortality rate which could happen I think it's not it's not something we should uh, be afraid of, but that we should that that it's you know again going back to some of the points that we talked about before the difference between uh, fear and uh, letting fear guide our actions or or lead us to panic. I don't think there's any benefit in being afraid of this and making it um, making us make us um, worse off but to prepare and to feel scared about this and think about what we can do to prepare ourselves and and what can we do to learn from our current experience what went what did we do well what did we not do well I mean, the obvious, there are some really obvious answers in terms of being, having better uh, stocks of personal protective equipment, masks, gowns, all that kind of safety stuff, having protocols in place and all the critical infrastructure that we use, um, making sure supply chains aren't, uh, are, are more diversified. So when we need ma if we need to buy more masks we know where to get them and it's not a single source somewhere in china that people uh, all the masks are coming from having local supply chains those kinds of things i think there's a lot that we can do starting as soon as we dig ourselves out of this um, dig ourselves out of this uh, pandemic and we start to come out of it i think our first 
course of action should be to plug all of the holes that we've found before we forget, before we get distracted by other things and forget about how, um, how poorly prepared we were for this and how, um, it, it, how easily it would have been had we really thought about it to prepare for this. I think that's all I wanted to say tonight. Uh, yeah, good night. <laughs>